0: Well, I was going to pray, but he did that for me. So thank you. One less thing to do. (laughs) So we've been going through the book of Philippians for the last three weeks. This is our fourth week together. And sadly, we are at the end of my time with you in this book. Um, It has been an awesome journey starting from the beginning to where we're at now and talking about what Paul has been doing through the work of Christ in his life and the work of Christ in the church. And as they've partnered together in this gospel mission, that's so focused on spreading the name of Jesus wherever Paul was uh, on his journey. If you remember a little bit about the beginning, I was talking about how uh, this church partnered with Paul. And so as Paul was traveling around, they were there behind him, supporting him, cheering him on financially, spiritually as well. And so Paul was spreading this gospel because of that partnership with the local church. This book has only been four short chapters, but it has been so packed full uh, with much godly wisdom Uh, advice, encouragement, and all of these things that we can find uh, as God is speaking to us as a church on how the church ought to live, act in the world with one another. Uh, And so there's so much to say and so little time to cover everything, and yet it is such a small book. Last week we focused on chapter two, uh, where Paul was reminding the believers in Philippi to consider one another better than themselves. To look at the person next to you and say, not me, but you. You are better than I am. And it's not to say this, you're not worth anything or the person above you has more value than you. It's the idea of saying, you know what, my, my will, my ways aren't going to be the superiority thing here. We're going to do this together in unity. My way won't be the highway kind of thing. And so Paul was trying to organize this church in such a way to say, let's do things together in unity. Let's not put ourselves above the rest and thinking we are better than those next to us. And so he goes on to use this amazing example of Jesus Christ. And if you go through that whole section in chapter 2, it just talks about who Christ was. You have this amazing, this amazing person, Jesus, sitting in heaven in all of his glory and splendor and laying that aside for the sake of coming and dwelling with people. He exemplified humility and a sacrificial others first attitude. So Paul was telling the church, cast that stuff off. Cast any semblance of pride or superiority for the sake of unity, and for the health and growth of the church. As we turn to the next chapter, we're focusing this morning on chapter 3 predominantly, Paul begins to bring his letter to a close. You have sort of the formal bulk of his letter being the the tail end of chapter 1 to pretty much the end of chapter 3, where Paul is like, this is the heart of what I want to say to you church at Philippi. But before he gets there, he sort of comes out with guns a-blazing. He's just come out of chapter 2 talking about who who Jesus is in terms of his humility and sacrifice. And then he closes off chapter 2 by basically saying, do that. Live as lights in the world in which you find yourselves. Then he opens into chapter 3. Guns a-blazing against those who are trying to argue that in order to be a real follower of Jesus, that there were some further steps involved. That, yeah, okay, you put your faith in Jesus, but there's a little bit more you need to do. And so Paul is... Paul is ferociously attacking this particular aspect uh, of those who are trying to come into the church from the outside or from within, who are trying to sort of preach a different gospel. And so from previous letters, Paul has advocated strongly against this position, that there is no other, there is no other gospel in Paul's mind. The only gospel is Jesus. And those who advocated for this particular form of gospel, uh, they held themselves in a higher standard. They thought to themselves, if we do this, if, if, we, if we put ourselves above the rest, then we're better than these other believers. Because not only have we put our faith in Jesus, but we've actually gone the extra mile, as we'll find out in a little bit. They were very focused on this idea of circumcision, that you couldn't be a full-fledged follower of Jesus unless you were circumcised. Didn't work out well for women, uh, but uh, that, that is what it is. <laughs> but this was their advocate position, right? You needed to have this in order to be a follower of Jesus. And so Paul is upset Those who hadn't gone through with this particular aspect, so you think of Gentiles, this wasn't placed on them as a a law as it was for the Jews. But for them, they were saying, this is the outward benchmark of a real convert. And those who hadn't gone through it were considered either less or not even a believer at all. Thus, in either some sort of preemptive strike, we don't really know where this has come from because we've been reading all these amazing things from Philippians so far, and then all of a sudden Paul changes things to a very dramatic turn. And so, again, like I said, either in a preemptive strike to warn the Philippians about this oncoming uh, rhetoric and all this stuff that could creep into the church or whether it's a direct attack coming from within, he wants to warn them about this particular aspect and not allowing, because he just came out of talking about unity together in the church. So saying, let's not let this aspect come into our midst and bring conflict. And so Paul comes out hard and strong in the opening passages of chapter 3. So look at that in verses 2 to 3, if you have your Bibles, it'll also be up on the screen. But look how he starts off, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Like, right out of the gate, he's got no, uh, there's no love lost for him here. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is a reoccurring problem, as I mentioned before, and Paul seems to be constantly addressing this, whether he's talking to the Galatians or Corinthians or any of the other churches, he's reminding these people, this is not the gospel that was laid on me when I met Jesus Christ. This was not the mandate I was given to go into the world, preach the gospel, and tell people this this is the faith you put in, but these are the next steps you have to take in order to become a follower of Jesus. And so Paul is constantly addressing this. Don't listen to those who come in and try to persuade you to a different gospel. The real gospel is an inward transformation through the power of Jesus Christ at work within upon our confession of faith in Him. There's nothing else. There's nothing else you need to do. It is not an outward experience as if we need to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but this is how I'm going to prove it. I'm going to show you physically what this looks like. Paul says that's a different gospel because it adds another step to something that shouldn't be there. It's unnecessary because Jesus did it all. He paid it all in full at the cross, as we read earlier in chapter 2. And to say anything else or to add anything else is flat out wrong. Paul would say, this is rubbish. This is not the gospel at all. And these false teachers want to boast about their circumcision as if there's any power or if there's life or privilege even in it. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 4, if you want to boast, go ahead and boast. By all means, boast about this thing. But if anyone among us right now in this conversation has any reason to boast... It's me. Paul, saying this. It's me. If anyone's going to boast about this particular situation, I'm a cut above the rest. I'm the only one who can truly boast about this. Listen to how he confronts this issue in verses 4 and onward. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's just like, I have it all. Like, what do you got? This is who I am. And so Paul hits back at these false teachers by using his own personal history as an example. First he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Jew. Straight up out of the gate, I'm a Jew. So I'm part of this people. In other words, Paul from birth followed the Torah. His parents were in that and as well. He, he didn't have a choice on that eighth day situation, but his parents followed that law. And he followed the law as he grew up. Second, he goes on to say, I can actually identify with my heritage. I belong to the tribe of Benjamin, a legit Hebrew of Hebrews. Some have suggested Paul mentioned this in light of the fact that there was a diaspora of Jewish people around the Greek world. And to some degree, the issue at hand may have been that they had lost some of their cultural history their heritage as it were maybe they lost a bit of their language due to their displacement in whatever culture they found themselves in roman or greek or whatever and being part of that other culture they might lose a little bit of who they used to be or to an even further degree they might not even have remembered at all the roots of their heritage yet they were still definitely jewish but basically paul could have said some of you don't even know where you've come from you don't know your roots what tribe are you from do you know probably not so who are you to say I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, at least I know where I'm coming from. I know who I am. And then 30 tells that he he tells him that he was a Pharisee, one of the strictest if not the strictest sects of of the religion of the Jews. He practiced the law to a tee, and so much so he was extremely zealous for God to the point where he was like, "Okay, I'm going to go to the Pharisee, the leaders at the time, And I'm going to ask them if they would give me permission to go to other places, round up these Christians, and I'm going to imprison them, or worse. He was so zealous for this particular aspect of faith that he wanted to eradicate the threat to their Jewish identity and their beliefs. And lastly, in regards to the law, Paul could say, I lived and breathed it. Again, I'm a Pharisee. I know this inside and out, backwards and forwards. I obeyed all of it. So if you want to talk about righteousness through the law, then I was blameless. So what are you boasting about? What do you have? Because I have all of this. What do you got? As if to say, after all that, he had a mic and he could have dropped it and he'd be like, bam, mic drop. <laughs> you got nothing on me, is what Paul is saying. Now, don't be mistaken. As Paul is listing off these things, he's not saying, like, look at how good I am. Like, I'm pretty amazing and you don't have as much as I have. He's not listing all of his credentials to brag because that wasn't his point at all. In fact, right after telling his opponents, this huge, like this amazing list of things that he's, he's got part of his life. He goes on to say in verse 7 to 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So if you can imagine, Paul's like an accountant. He's opening the books and he's like, okay, hey, what are my gains? What are my losses? And as he's opening up the book, Paul has taken stock of his gains. We just read about them in a just a moment ago paul could have gone on and on and highlighted everything he had done in his life every goal achieved everything he had aspired to be and accomplished he could have listed off all of his credentials just look at these gains look at how much i've earned and made he could have said i've done this i've done that look at all of these things and these accomplishments but he stops and says but it's all rubbish All these things that you think are really gains, all these things that you put on a pedestal and say this is the pinnacle of whatever situation you find yourself, faith or otherwise, Paul's like, that's rubbish. It's all worth nothing. When you hold all of these things up and put them next to Christ, they fade away. They're just nothing. They pale in comparison to the knowledge of knowing Jesus. So he takes everything he's had in his gains column and shifts it over and moves it to the losses. These are worth nothing to me. All of these things, his status, his, his, he's totally legit and valid in who he was. He was, an amazing, uh, he was an amazing person, a zealous person for the Pharisees and stuff like that. But he takes that and says, it's worth nothing to me. None of those feats or accomplishments could ever get him to that all-important goal. Righteousness is not based on things we do. It's based on faith in Jesus, as he writes in verse 9. It's not about any of these things, these outward efforts and works. It's Jesus, no more, no less. Which is why he warns the church to refuse to listen to anyone who comes in and says otherwise. Anyone who comes in and says anything contrary to that gospel message. It's only faith in Jesus. And if any gospel promotes a Jesus and in their message, Paul says it's false. Don't buy into it. It's Jesus only. And if anyone comes along and says you need this and that and this and that to become a follower, rubbish. Why does Paul go on about this so often? So passionate about making sure that this gospel is so well articulated that there's no hindrances or hurdles to anyone coming to faith. Why does he go on? It's because for him the goal of life is this pursuit of identifying ourselves with Christ. To find our identity in him, not in our upbringing, not in our works, not in our accomplishments or our status. Paul states in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him even in death. Paul is so adamant about his whole journey, this being a continuous thing, pursuing becoming more like Jesus. That's everything he's trying to point towards. I want to be more like Jesus. For him, it's not just to be a good teacher. Paul was a great teacher. His letters, we read them. He's amazing, profound wrote much but it's not just to be a good teacher or perform miraculous signs and wonders in Acts there was napkins on the floor and people just touched them and they were healed because Paul had some sort of encounter with them or because Paul's shadow walked by people they were healed Paul could have rested on those laurels and said look I'm doing pretty amazing things this is as far as I'm going to go but it's not about being a good teacher or performing those miraculous signs and wonders he goes so far to even say if I must suffer with him even in that I'll go too. I want that as well. I want the whole of it. I don't want just those easy, good parts of following Jesus. I want the difficult, the suffering, the grinding of making sure that this gospel is preached. What Christ did and went through, I want to experience that in my life, whether good or bad. Sadly, for many who follow Christ, they only want those good parts. Who doesn't? That's that, that's sort of this human nature in our lives, right? We don't want to take the hard way. We want things to be easy. And in this day and age, definitely everything's easy. When my phone doesn't work for a second, it's like, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you functioning properly? This is the one thing you're supposed to do, and you aren't doing it well. Impatience and all of this stuff, and when things aren't working our way, we get frustrated. We want things to be easy and convenient. We want the blessings and the privileges of faith and salvation. But like that story of the rich young ruler, there are so many who find it hard to give up the things we want to keep holding on to. Or to be even discouraged, where in those moments we give up entirely and be like, this isn't for me. This is too hard. This following Jesus thing is a little bit more difficult than I was led to believe. I don't want any more part of it. I don't want to do this anymore. And so some give up entirely and maintain no aspect of pursuit or perseverance in faith. Paul sees those moments, those difficulties, those hardships. His whole life, if you read it from sort of start to finish, it was kind of just riddled all throughout. It was a really hard life for Paul. But Paul saw all of those moments not as an opportunity to grumble or to complain like, woe is me, my life is so terrible. He had every right to. He totally could have done that. But he never saw it from that vantage point. The vantage point he saw was that these are all opportunities for growth for me to mature, to develop, to become more like Christ, to in fact actually share in his sufferings, becoming like him even to the point of death. This is not to say he pursued or that even we as the church, I don't think anyone willingly would want to pursue suffering. But when Paul comes along, he says, I'll pursue this if that's the case. If this is the cause that gets me closer to Jesus, I'll do it. When it comes to that, what is our response when you experience hardship, when you experience suffering, whether minimal or hard? James 1 teaches us we are to consider those hardships as an opportunity to deepen our walk, to consider it pure joy, in fact, is what it says, when you encounter many trials. Because when we go through those, it tests us, it produces perseverance, and in the end, it ultimately produces a maturity in our faith. We mature. And that is the outlook Paul is advocating for that amidst the suffering that you're not grumbling or complaining but they're using this as as an opportunity to ask Christ how can I grow amidst this hardship? It is so easy to grumble and complain. Just take a look at the history of Israel. When nothing went their way oh, we have to eat manna for days. Oh, why is nothing going Well, Let's go back to Egypt. Grumble, grumble, grumble. But Paul saw these opportunities as an opportunity to grow deeper to what end as you're reading this this chapter to what end paul why would we do this why would we pursue suffering not the sake for suffering's sake of course but why would we embrace it or enter into it willingly to what end and paul is saying the end game is to attain everlasting life that his relationship with jesus becomes his lifelong goal so that one day he can meet him face to face in the resurrection and officially say officially say i've arrived i've arrived I'm face-to-face with Jesus. But until that day, he reassures his readers that while this ambitious, seemingly very lofty goal of becoming like Jesus, he's in fact not arrived. He's not there yet. He hasn't achieved this sense of perfection or this I'm better than everyone status that often comes with maturity. To think that we're higher, or that we've grown deeper in our walk more than others. Paul has not arrived. So this next section is the heart of Paul's argument as you move along. To those who would say perfection is achieved at circumcision or any form of good works, look at all the things that I've done. I'm a follower of Jesus, but look at my life. Look at the things I'm doing. Look how much I'm hustling for Christ. I'm doing so, so much. And most of them could say, see, look, look at what I'm doing. But Paul says these aren't the the benchmarks of arriving. For his opponents, that was what it was for them to be circumcised. For them, upon circumcision, they would have said, See, look, we've arrived. There's nothing else we need to do. And so in that sense, it's like, we don't need to deepen our walk. We don't need to grow deeper with Jesus. We've done all these, these things that sort of prove that we're followers of Jesus. Why would we need to grow anymore? But Paul, after using his life as an example, is very quick to say, Don't think for a second I said all of that as if to lord myself over all of you, or that I was actually boasting how far along I've come in my faith. He could have. Paul was a giant, like not physically, but Paul was a giant in his faith. He did so much. The gospel was spreading like wildfire. Churches were being planted. Signs and wonders were being performed through him. But listen to what he says in verse 12 and on. Not that I've already obtained this, this status or perfection. Not that I've already obtained this or that I am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. He's very quick to assure them that he was nowhere near that goal. Not that it was like some far off unaccomplishing thing, but he was saying, I'm not anywhere near that goal. In fact, apart from Christ, he couldn't even have gotten there anyways. In the NLT translation, the passage is worded, I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. As I've mentioned before, Paul's radical transformation was the catalyst for everything he was doing. It was the catalyst for all of his life's ambition to serving and knowing Christ. And reflecting on who he was and what he was doing at the time, persecuting the church, namely. All he could do was marvel at the mercy that when Christ met him on that road to Damascus to say, What? After all I've done, how could you meet me here? After everything I was about to do to your people— how could you meet me here and extend such grace to me? All he could do is marvel at that mercy and grace of Jesus to still call him, to possess him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, this isn't on the screen, but this is what Paul's saying to Timothy. Paul's saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, And insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In other words to say, of whom I am the worst. Paul saying, I was the worst of all sinners. But he goes on to say, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost or the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. It was that moment, it was that moment where he experienced Jesus on that road that changed everything for him. It wasn't just a flicker, it wasn't anything that he would reflect on later and be like, wow, I met Jesus and carried on with his life as usual. It changed everything everything it was in that moment that that transformation spurred him on that motivated him to not just say i'm gonna press on but he actually did it i'm pressing on he actually wanted to make that his pursuit because jesus first pursued him and called him into this new way of life christ's call and grace are what enabled him to live out those those words like paul jesus has made us his own If any of you are in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus has pursued you the same way that he pursued Paul. Maybe you didn't have this amazing radical situation where Christ met you on some road with a blinding light, but Christ pursued you. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, it captures this thought so well for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It was that same mercy that humbled Paul and was a constant reminder to him in his life when he was experiencing hardship or ease. It was that, that moment where he recognized Christ was merciful to him on that road, and it caused him to press on because Christ did it for him first. In his commentary on Philippians, Jason Meyer writes, The word translated press on dioko, is the same word Paul used earlier to describe his persecution of the church. In other words, Paul pressed on to persecute the church, but when Christ changed his life, he pressed on to live for Jesus. Paul's old mindset was a single minded pursuit of persecuting the church, but the new birth brought a new mindset. A single minded pursuit to know Christ and attain the resurrection. Church, what is your mindset? Where do your motivations take you? I encourage you, take some time in your life today, tomorrow, soon. Take some time out of your life and remind yourself of what Jesus did for you that day when you gave your life to him. It changed everything for Paul. And if you stand here today and you don't feel like you've changed at all, go back. Go back to the source. Go to Jesus. Does that drive you? Does that cause you to give thanks to God for His grace that called you out of death into life? Reflect on that. Don't be discouraged, by the way, if you aren't there yet, because there's this sense of people in the church where it's like, man, that person over there is just really sold out for Jesus, and they're at this point where I wish I was there, but I'm not. We're all on different journeys. We're all in different places. We're not all running in the same lane, in the same race. We're all called, but not all of us are running in the same place. So don't be discouraged if you aren't there yet. Like like Paul, we can say as well, I haven't arrived there yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm trying. I'm striving. I'm straining towards that goal. Paul continues on in verse 14. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul now moves to language that that looks at the Christian life as one running a race. Striving forward, running, pursuing, straining oneself to get to that prize, to get across that finish line. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, uses a great illustration that he'll borrow to set this up for us. On August 7th in uh, 1954, the British Commonwealth uh, Empire Games took place in Vancouver, and the greatest mile-run matchup that ever happened took place during this event. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because the British uh, person Roger Bannister and the Australian John Landy were the only two people who'd run the four-minute mile in the the world. They were the only two people who'd ever accomplished it. And Bannister had been the first man to ever run a four-minute mile. He was the first person. And both runners were in peak condition. Roger Bannister strategized that as as they were running, uh, he would relax during the third lap and save everything for that finishing drive to conserve his energy. But as they began that third lap, the Australian, Landy, poured it on. He was just giving her, I'm gonna win this race And he was running hard, stretching his already substantial lead. So immediately, Bannister adjusted his strategy, increasing his pace and gaining on Landy. And the lead was quickly cut in half. And as the bell for the final lap rang, they were almost even. Landy began running even faster, and Bannister ran even faster, following in hot pursuit. And both men were flying down. Bannister felt that he was going to lose the race if Landy didn't let up, if he didn't slow down. And then came this famous moment, at the last stride before the home stretch, The crowds were roaring, they were cheering, and Landy couldn't hear Bannister's football, footfall, and he looked back. A fatal lapse of concentration, Bannister launched his attack and won the Empire Games that day by five yards. John Landy's lapse was an old and age-old tale. The sports-knowledgeable Apostle Paul would have seen Landy's mistake in a flash because he knew that to be a successful runner, one must not look back over his shoulder you must forget what lies behind. Because when a runner turns even slightly to glance back, there's a momentary loss of focus and rhythm, incurring the critical loss of a fraction of a second or even seconds. Paul uses this phrase, forgetting what lies behind. It's not a way of saying we need a memory wipe. He's not saying find somewhere to get this out of your head and focus on all the things that are happening. This idea of forgetting what lies behind is not necessarily forgetting the fact that it happened, but not allowing that thing that happened to dictate the outcome of what you are living your life for. That your past mistakes or successes, that those don't determine the outcome of the future decisions that you make, that those in fact stay in the past. So when Paul says, forget what lies behind, he's like, don't worry about those things. They're in the past. They aren't part of your future anymore. Let those things go. Some have suggested that Paul uses this uh, phrasing as a part of his sort of pre-conversion life, that he was using this phrase as he kept that in his mind. But given the nature of the discussion previously in the earlier part of the chapter, it is more likely Paul is refusing to look upon all of his past successes, all of those accomplishments. Both thoughts, though, are worth pursuing uh, just for a moment. First, there are many believers who struggle to run their race because of past sins and shortcomings. Their reason for looking back during the race is not one of motivation, but it is one of discouragement. The thought that would say, how can I keep running when I did this or when I did that or this other thing? I don't deserve to be here. How could God love me? If that has been your thinking, be reminded today of God's goodness and His forgiveness. In your race, it is you who is beating yourself up over those things. That if you've gone to God and you have sought forgiveness, church, they're forgiven. Those things are forgiven when you have sought it out. Run your race. Don't look back at who you used to be or what you did or what you were, but focus on who Christ is making you to be as he shapes you and grows you. If there's verses to take solace in, for this one particular thing Psalm 103 verse 12 says he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west what a beautiful reminder not only of God's grace but of what he does when he forgives us Hebrews 10:17 says I will remember their sins no more when we are forgiven God is not counting our forgiven sins against us rest in that fact believe his words you are forgiven when you go to Him in repentance. Always. First John 1 John 1.9. If you were to leave with any verse that would remind you about this, First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, don't let your past self dictate the future that Christ has for you. Second, there are also those who rest on past successes. Or some who take it even further to the point of saying, I don't really need to grow anymore. I've done, I've done as much as I felt like I needed to do. I've somehow arrived. I'm at the pinnacle of this thing we call the Christian life. And no longer do I need to feel this sense of motivation or even feel like I need to continue growing. Paul is saying primarily it is these successes and these opportunities for pride to creep in where he would say, forget those things. Focus on the race ahead. The runner who runs like this, when he looks back upon looking back, would say, wow, look how far I've come. Look at all those people who are behind me, running so slow. Look at me. The temptation thereafter would be to feel like you could relax or take a break, thus forgetting the goal or even the point of the race altogether. Paul would say, don't let that be part of your story. Stay humble. You're in the race not because you earned it, but because Christ called you, pursued you, possessed you first. On looking back, no seasoned runner would dare do such a thing. If you were a professional runner and you were trained and your whole life was running, yes, this guy in that story I mentioned earlier made that mistake. But think about all the runners who saw that happen and learned from that mistake. No runner would dare to do such a thing in an actual race and let that be part of their race. Their training would keep their sights laser-focused on crossing that finish line and not being distracted by their surroundings or even the other racers, we mustn't look back but press on to that ultimate goal, the most worthwhile prize for any race ever run, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Now to clarify, this prize is not just the joy and admittance to heaven. It's not sort of like this idea of get out of jail free card or what some people will say as fire insurance. That's not the whole point of going to heaven. As I mentioned previously, Paul's statement in chapter 1, he actually goes and says, my desire is to depart, in saying, my desire is to depart this world, to leave this life and become a part of who Christ is, to be with Christ. He goes so far to say, for that is even far better. It is better for me to leave this world and be with Christ than to be here any longer. For that is far better, is what Paul says. Heaven for Paul was not just the joys of eternal life, though that is amazing. That was not where his heart was at. His heart was at the very fact that upon getting to heaven, he was going to be face to face with Jesus Christ, his risen Savior. To actually be in his presence, to hear his voice, to hear him laugh, to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That was his joy and his lifelong pursuit, not just to get to heaven but to be be with Jesus. This is the prize he speaks of in verse 14. The upward call of being ushered in the presence of God and dwelling with him for all eternity. As Paul begins to draw to a close this formal part of his letter, he doesn't just leave them with this thought of running a race and ends it at that point. Run your race. Okay, church, go and do it. He closes off this encouraging exhortation with a very important reminder. Keep your eyes on things to come. If we're talking about running a race, there's something we're running towards, future. We haven't gotten there yet. We're striving towards something that lies ahead of us. And so Paul is saying, keep your eyes focused on the things that are to come. As I mentioned in the first week, when we started this series, we sort of gave the backdrop of the story of how the church in Philippi started. Philippi was a Roman colony. They were like a small scaled version of Rome itself. They took on the language, the customs, the clothing, and most importantly, as a colony, they weren't just seen as common people. They were full-fledged Roman citizens. And due to this fact, it would have been very easy for Paul's audience to see themselves as people of the present. He calls them back to remember that there is a future event at which Christ will return. And in verses 18 and 19, he tells them that there are some who walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things, people of the present. These are people who think nothing of that glorious day when Jesus comes and returns and takes us home. For them, each day is a glorious day, a glorious day to indulge in sin and self, to engage in anything that could satiate that appetite. And it is unclear as to whether or not this group of people in Paul's mind are unbelievers or believers Influenced by the world. In either case, their end is not a pleasant one because they have not truly taken hold of Christ and the salvation and the gift he has offered. But then he turns to the church at Philippi and he says this, O you church, Philippi, in verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself? Yes, you are Roman citizens here on earth, Philippi, but that isn't your true citizenship. That isn't your true citizenship. There is a kingdom that is not of this world, and that is where your citizenship is. You follow Jesus, that is where your citizenship is. Roman citizens, we're proud to be Roman. They lorded it and boasted about it and were so arrogant. At Philippi, they embraced it. As a colony, they're like, we're taking this on. They adhered to the laws and the regulations. They enjoyed the provisions and benefits. They looked to Rome for support, for help, if they should find themselves in trouble. And ultimately, the biggest issue at hand was that they pledged allegiance to Caesar. Caesar was viewed as a god and savior. And it was to him many Roman citizens looked to and said, you will be the one that saves us. In Caesar we trust, as it were. When Paul reminds them of their true citizenship, then these things are there in the background of their mind. What do you mean the citizenship? I'm a Roman citizen. Yeah, but that's not the best part. You're a citizen of heaven. This is here, but that's not the be-all, end-all of who you are. are. N.T. Wright states, If someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they certainly wouldn't mean, so we're looking forward to going to live there. Being a colony works the other way around. The task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece, to expand Roman influence. So it is with followers of Jesus. Firstly, we not only look to that one future event where Christ returns, but we also fully recognize that as citizens of heaven, we are Christ's representatives, his ambassadors here on earth. The body of Christ is a colony of heaven here and now. Yes, we look forward to this future day when Christ returns and calls us home and we're in Him, in heaven with him in glory, where he comes and his bride, we're once again together, where God's people are finally vindicated. Our hope rests in that promise of Christ's return. We look forward to that day However, until that day comes, like Paul, we are called to run our race, to press on for the sake and the spread of the gospel. Wherever we find ourselves running the race, it is there we continue to spread the kingdom of God, ever expanding this kingdom of heaven so that others too may run the same race in a lifelong pursuit of knowing and gaining Christ. Secondly, we remember that all things We're subject to him, as verse 21 says. This is especially true of rulers. Paul has authority figures like Caesar in mind who claimed divinity and believed himself to be the savior of the world. But as followers of Jesus, they know and we know that that is not the case. We must remember that while we are called to honor and respect our leaders here in the present and live peacefully with them and those around us wherever we find ourselves in this world, They will never accomplish for us all that Christ can and will do. Jesus is our real and only Savior and no one else can stand in that place for us or even do what he has already done. They too one day will bow before the king willingly or otherwise. This is true of us and it is true of those who God has put in positions of authority over us. We do not look to them. We look to Jesus. It is fitting then that as Paul comes to the sort of conclusion of his formal argument to this church, he tells them in this letter, "Stand firm," in verses one, in chapter four, verse one, it says, "Church, stand firm." In chapter four, he moves on to some closing remarks and encouraging things. We won't get there, sadly, we ran out of time. But I encourage you to read that; it's amazing. Uh, there's lots of stuff, chock full of. Just really one-off passages that are super encouraging. But what Paul is getting at when he says stand firm, he, he doesn't want them to forget all that he has taught them and encourage them to be, primarily for them to be more like Jesus, to press on and run their race, for them to not take their eyes or focus off that eternal hope of our heavenly citizen, our heavenly citizenship. He would say, Philippi, stand firm. Don't forget all that I taught you. Don't forget to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And so it is with us, church, here and now. Paul's letter to them is very much so an encouraging letter to us. We're reminded of all the things that God can do when we step out in obedience. Like Paul, he didn't know where things were going to head when he said, okay, I'll go to Macedonia. And poof, this amazing situation happens in the church's planet. Even when we don't know what that outcome will be, We still step out in faith and in obedience. That we are called to serve over being served. What a reminder in our our day today, not just for us here in the church, but culturally speaking, it's me over you. Me first and you next, if you're even in line. (laughs) That's not the way the church, the kingdom of God operates. We are called to serve over being served. So much so that we actually count others more significant than ourselves. That is a hard, hard thing, especially if that's something you struggle with, to look at those around you and say, you're better than me. Again, not in a cocky, I'm worthless sort of way, but to live your life in such a way that you serve others before you serve yourself. To to exemplify the same humility and sacrificial life of Jesus. Eastgate. Eastgate. May we too press on and not be hindered by our past failures. As a church, maybe, as a people, as individuals, collectively. Let's not be hindered by past successes, things we've accomplished, amazing things we've done as a church. Look around us. God has done so much in our midst, but he's not saying to rest on those things. Bless you for doing them, but those aren't things we should focus on. Be continually reminded of our calling here on earth, that as we run our race, we spread the gospel to those around us and around the world. May we live as citizens of heaven, pressing on to that glorious upward call towards God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are your church, we are your bride. Lord, where many of us struggle to live out this faith in our day to day, in the nine to five, in our time at home with family, in our time by ourselves, God, in those moments of wrestling and figuring out what it means to follow you, would you meet us in our need? That in those areas of our lives that hold us back or burden us, may we cling to passages where it says in Hebrews that we can, we can throw off the sin that so easily entangles us to be free to run our race, God, would you break the chains that bind those things that hold us back from walking in freedom and victory. God, there's so much you want to do through the church, for the church. If only we would step out in faith. If only we would step out in surrender. God, our race is unique to each one of us here. But God, we run a race also collectively as the church that you've planted on this part of the world. God, may Eastgate be a beacon of hope and light in the world that surrounds us in our community in our midst even that we would look at one another and see the love and life of Christ God help us run our race God I pray that you would bless this church that as we've gone through this book that this wouldn't be just words we heard from pages or some some guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about God I just pray I pray that these words would go forth with power and authority, that you would actually use them to transform our lives, to spur us on, that in those moments where we're reflecting on past successes or past failures, that you would remind us of who we are in you, that our identity wouldn't be found in the things we've done, but would be purely and solely founded on Christ and Christ alone. Jesus, continue fostering yourself in this community, and may we, may we be more like you that when the world sees us, they would see something different, that they would see the life of Christ flowing here. God, may we be so bold to step out of these walls and share that same life with those around us, that our race wouldn't be an individual effort, but a focus solely on running our race in order that we can bring others into the race as well. God, use this church in a mighty way. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.